Hello, this is Greg Smith of Junior Braves of the Apocalypse, and you're listening to Soundtrack Alley. Hello, and welcome to part two of the Don Bluth Extravaganza. Today, Erica Christie and I will go further into two more Don Bluth films, The Land Before Time and All Dogs Go to Heaven. We'll go into the background, the animation, the differences in the composers, and even more. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Christy, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you so much. I'm doing great. And I have to say, the name Don Booth Extravaganza is fantastic. I don't know who came up with that, but I really enjoy it. Good. Because I think it was you. <laughs> I think you might be right about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm sticking with that. So that's excellent. Um, well, let's let's get into talking about some of these amazing films by Don Bluth. Uh, first, we're going to get into The Land Before Time. Uh, how gut-wrenching is this movie for you? Oh, you know, I hear that a lot. Like, this and, like, Bambi are kind of the two things that people talk about seeing as a little kid. And then, in both of them, the mother dies really early on, and the little mm. kid is left an orphaned, and people get really emotional about it. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because I was a little older. I mean, I was, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 the first time I saw this. Like, I wasn't super young. So, th- as a kid, this this one never really got me. Same thing with Bambi. Like, I never got super emotional seeing it. Um, yeah. As an adult, um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much, much more emotional watching it as an adult, thinking, wow, that was my little kid and I just died and they're out there alone. Yeah, so so as a kid, didn't bother me, didn't phase me whatsoever. As an adult, it was a very, very different film going back and watching everything that happens. Yeah. It, uh, it makes a really different impact uh, when you're older. I mean, as a kid, you're watching it because it's these cute little dinosaurs and they're mm-hmm. having this adventure and they're ha- facing up against a giant T-Rex and everything and all this stuff. But as an adult, you look at it and it's like, wow. They are facing these challenges alone and Mm -hmm. the impact of Littlefoot losing his mother and the whole situation of how she died was pretty, pretty crazy, too. So Mm -hmm. it just had a had a real difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely different interpretation being an adult than being a little kid and watching it. Yeah. And it was interesting, you know, you have the different characters. You have Littlefoot being a brontosaurus. You have 
uh, Spike being, I'm not sure what he was supposed to be. <laughs> um, and you have, you have uh, Syrah, and it was George Lucas's idea to make her a female Triceratops rather than a male. Which was and, a great idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you've got Petrie, and you've got Ducky, which is the duck, duck-billed dinosaur. And uh, it's, a, you know, really great dynamic of different, I don't know, types of dinosaurs. And, I mean, mm-hmm. they were all diverse. Ooh, mm-hmm. there we go. That's a very diverse <laughs> type of situation in, a, in an animated film. So... Uh, one thing I liked is that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas wanted to make the film have no dialogue, which is interesting, but it would have put it right along the lines of the Rite of Spring from Fantasia. But for it to appeal to children, they axed that idea and got actors and actresses to do the voices. Yeah, and even though there are lines, there's actually very few lines. Um, mm-hmm. There's, like, it's, the movie is what, like an hour and ten minutes? I think a little under yeah, that. It's, and it's short. I, I'm going to guesstimate that there's maybe 12 to 15 minutes of that that actually have lines. So even though they did, you know, say, we want it to be silent, but let's add some, you know, voices to it. The voices take up a very, very small portion of what the film is. Most mm-hmm. of the film is visual and music. And I, yeah. and I, so I think, so I think they accomplished what they had originally get, went for, even though they did add some dialogue. Oh yeah. And I think <laughs> considering there were what, 12 of these films, yeah, 11, what, 11 or 12 and video games and a TV series and, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Just never ending. <laughs> and the thing about it is, like, this was the only one that wasn't a musical. It was purely, it's like watching uh, the um, the equivalent of the Black Cauldron on Disney side, but this is Don Bluth's. To where there's mm-hmm. no, like, singing songs in the film. It's all, like, instrumental uh, music mm-hmm. that James Horner just does an amazing job with. And it just, it really changes the tone and feel of the film. Mm-hmm. And, and aren't, the, aren't all these sequels, like, musicals? Yeah. Like, I feel like I've only seen glimpses of them, but oh, I yes. feel like all, all of them, them are musicals. Like, all the sequels yeah. are. This is the only one hmm. that wasn't. And honestly, <laughs> this is the only one they should have made. That's my opinion, though. Those, I know, those are fighting I words. <laughs> Come on, emails. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Pizza Hut, they had ran a promotion regarding these characters. And if you spent any certain amount on pizza you could receive a free hand puppet of one of the characters. And they were that soft, like, rubber um, die-cast puppets that you'd get in the Pizza Hut restaurant. They had Littlefoot, they had Petrie, they had Ducky, and they had Spike. Um, Oh, and they had Sierra. They had five of them. Um, 
the one that I had the most out of that series was Ducky, and I had to get two of them because my uh, Cocker Spaniel tore up the first one, and it was her favorite uh, <laughs> toy. Like, I had to get her another one mm-hmm. because she was like, where's where's my ducky? I want my ducky. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how ironic. Was ducky no. your favorite as well? Actually, I like Spike. I like Spike. Which one was your favorite? Spike? I was a big fan of Spike because he didn't talk much. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a newborn. <laughs> the fact that he could walk <laughs> was pretty impressive. <laughs> Yeah, but I just, I liked his look, and I liked the way he was, so. Anyway. You know, you can look up the uh, commercial for the Pizza Hut toys um, on YouTube and find out more about those, so. That was great. (laughs) So, throughout the production, the film underwent some several cutting and editing of footage, Um, It was interesting that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas thought that some scenes would appear too dark and intense. And Spielberg told Don Bluth while looking at the scenes, it's too scary. We'll have kids crying in the lobby and a lot of angry parents. You don't want that. About 19 scenes comprising of 10 minutes of footage, uh, mostly pertaining to the T-Rex and the five characters in mild peril or distress were cut. And Don Bluth was really unhappy with it and fought to keep the footage, but felt like he had to do so, making this film only 69 minutes. So it was actually 109 minutes, wouldn't that be? Or no. No, that's only... No, six, 69 minutes, that's yeah. an hour and nine minutes. And I believe that's including the credits, which means the movie is actually barely an hour long. He claims that to have a personal copy of the film reel with the whole thing, though no word on whether or not that will ever see the light of day. Um, Although I have read rumors that they've they've screened the full version in other countries. I imagine. But... Unless you actually see that 10 minutes, it's hard to know if they actually did it or not. And with Don Bluth, I mean, it could have been a really good section of film. Um, It just Mm -hmm. probably wasn't in line with what Steven Spielberg wanted to do with it. And I'm surprised that Don Bluth kept him on the project. Uh, Because he could have just said, nope, we're doing it my way. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But at the time, and I mean, even now, obviously, I mean, Spielberg's name carries so much weight that I could see Don Bluth saying, you know, as, as, as hard as he fought for those 10 minutes, I could see him saying in the end, you know, okay, let's just, let's cut those out and let's, you know, go with as you know, mm-hmm. good of a movie as yeah. we can. And it could have been that there were, there were probably several factors into that whole situation, so... Um, yeah, but then we, we look at that the film actually had a narrator. Um, the film's narrator was the voice for Reuter. I don't know who Reuter was. 
Rooter was the really grumpy oh, dinosaur right. that Littlefoot meets yes. immediately after his okay. mom dies. And the one that says, oh, hey, you'll be okay. Don't worry. Just keep going. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I had a hard time remembering who he was. And I was like, who <laughs> was he? Uh, but outside, like, the whole movie situation, you know, when you look at Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, I mean, the biggest films that they had produced were Star Wars and Indiana Jones and together they had worked on Indiana Jones together and then this film which is kind of unusual for them to tackle an animated feature and in the movie it's interesting that there were 29 different species of animals and five of them were already extinct by the time the movie was set so the time period that the movie was set in there were five species that were already extinct from that time period which is interesting yeah i mean all of those eras uh i don't want to give an exact number because i don't know but i'm gonna guess it's what 400 500 million mm-hmm. years that all dinosaurs lived and like all of these you know you know, Jurassic and all of these different periods have completely different animals from all the others. So um, I I can totally understand them wanting to pick the most interesting dinosaurs and put them all in one mm-hmm. period, even if they actually weren't like alive at the same time oh, as yeah. the others. So I'll give them that one. As a filmmaker, I'll give them that one. That's fine. <laughs> time crunch. <laughs> yeah. Uh It was also the highest animated film of all time until The Little Mermaid, which was only three years later uh, in 1989. Or no, two years. So, or was it? Yeah, 87 to 89. So, yeah. Uh, It had... (laughs) So, according to my notes, so we thought that there were 12 sequels. Or even 11 well, there were 13 sequels to this movie. Wow. And yeah. there were eight games, two sing-along videos, mm. and a TV series. <laughs> I don't know. It's the series that just won't end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, these actors are now just phoning it in for rewritten dialogue and reused animation cells or whatever they were using by that point. I didn't even know they even did an animated series of this movie because I know they did mm-hmm. uh will Goes West, a TV series. And that didn't mm-hmm. last very long. It only lasted like one season, but uh, I had no idea. <laughs> so, hmm. Anyway, moving along, you know, you you look at uh, the production of it that it originally was to release in 1987. Uh, it was delayed due to the relocation of Sullivan, Sullivan Bluth Studios to Dublin, Ireland. I didn't know that. And in his book, The Art of Animation, Don Bluth admitted that the film's massive financial success can be partially attributed to the 19-minute cutout. Huh. Well, maybe he admitted that he was wrong? Maybe? 
Yeah, I think I think some of that is for kids' movies. Usually, the shorter mm-hmm. the better, um, and so it's sort of a, it's sort of a two factor. One, if the parents know that the movie is short, they know that their their kid will go to it and sit through the whole thing, and they can kind of have you know an hour and ten minutes of the kid being really entertained. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is if the movie is that short, movie theaters can show it more often during oh, the yeah. day. So I, I so I think it was kind of a two for um, parents liked it because it was short. Theaters liked it because they could show more of them mm-hmm. in a day. So that would be my that would be my guess why it made more money because of how short oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, and it's still very impactful um, for even mm-hmm. as it being as short as it was. Um, I thought it was also interesting that the trailer had a deleted bit. Uh, from the final scene with Littlefoot saying, now we'll always be together. And apparently that wasn't in the film. Neat stuff. Uh, it's always sad when there's something really fun in the trailer and it doesn't make it to the final film. Yeah, but we see that in a lot of films. Um, we even yeah. see that with like things that they wanted to put in the film or alter something that was in the film say per example spoiler alert that in the trailer for infinity war you see the hulk running alongside the rest of the avengers and in the movie it was actually bruce banner in the hulk buster suit so mm-hmm. you know changes differences yeah. so <laughs> Especially when your post-production lasts two or three years, it's quite easy for things to fall out of the movie before it actually becomes yeah. finalized. Yeah. They should have edited that a little bit. <laughs> okay, so the scene where Sharptooth lands on the back of Littlefoot's mother was originally fully visible, but it was changed to shadow um, for that section. And the movie also refers to animals and nature in charming and poetic names. I thought this was really interesting that they included things like green food for leaves, the bright circle for the sun, the mountains that burn for volcanoes, sharp tooth for tyrannosaurs, tree stars for beautiful leaves, uh, flyer for pterodactyl, Long necks for brontosaurus, three horns for triceratops, spike tail for stegosauri, the great earth shake for an earthquake, hopper for frogs, big mouth, which was what ducky was, and the great valley, which was for a beautiful valley, and the great circle of life for life itself. So it had somewhat similarities to things, elements of like, the Lion King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked that they did that sort of thing because that's very much how a child would see things. Like, you know, a dinosaur comes out of his egg and he's got a really long neck. You'd call him long neck. Um, Sarah comes out of her egg and she's got three horns. You can go, hey, you're a three horn. So I like that from the aspect that kids would look at it and go, oh, I understand what that is. And then when they get a little bit older and they're either looking in a book or they're in a museum and they see a dinosaur with three horns and then they slowly start to understand, oh, if it's dinosaur has three horns, then it's this kind of mm-hmm. dinosaur. So 
I actually enjoyed that they did that. Yeah, and even studios long after this revealed that uh, there were certain dinosaurs that were like opportunistic omnivores. And so like the example that it gave in my notes was that Triceratops, like Sarah, uh, could have been willing to eat meat in real life as well as plants. I didn't realize that either. Yeah, I was, I was, I was always thought that Triceratops were strictly herbivores. I hadn't heard of them being omnivores. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it was just a study that had been done. So it's mm, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, the early working title was "The Land Before Time Began." Mm. It just slightly, slightly longer. <laughs> <laughs> uh also let's see there were over 600 background paintings made for the film and most of these depicted beautiful but barren wastelands and presented a real challenge for the creative team and i'm not sure why that would be the case i mean they could easily have painted these and then just add in the characters later wouldn't they Possibly. It, it There's a lot of different ways to animate things, so it kind of depends on what style they were going for um, and how much of the script they had already before they started animating. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, that is a really good point. Um, one of the key characters that Don Bluth liked to work with was Don DeLuise. And... Ironically, he was also featured in Disney's Oliver and Company, um, and it was released the same year as The Land Before Time. And still, I mean, he found his way into this movie. He was a regular for Don Bluth for a lot of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Secret of Nim, uh, the movie that we'll be talking about next, All Dogs Will Go to Heaven. He was in that one, mm-hmm. and... Uh, he was used quite frequently throughout. Mm. And then, and then as we already talked about both of the American Tale movies. Yes. So, yeah, he's, he's always been one of my favorites. Yeah. And then I thought it was also good that in the second half of the film, um, well, it says that in the original version, Littlefoot finds the Great Valley after he goes off alone. And he realizes that he had to go find the others because they won't find it on their own and goes back for them. Uh, the sharp tooth scene then happens and he leads them to the valley. And this can also be detected in that final film or the final cut of the film. Uh, but they had to change it, of course, because it was would have altered things and it was more... I think it would have been more important for them to all be together anyway and face Sharptooth to where he's not facing him all alone. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I think as far as the story goes, I think it's better for them to all reach it together rather than Littlefoot reach it and then have to go back to his friends. Not that, I mean, we know that Littlefoot would have done that if he had found it alone, but I think it's just a little more impactful for all of them to be together when they find it. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, you think about Don Bluth films and how he, um, 
he had certain characteristics that he would be that would have in each film. Like you look at the Secret of Nim, you look at the Land Before Time, you look at All Dogs Go to Heaven, you look at um, what is that other one? It had a rooster in it. Um, did you say? Did you say Oliver already? Rockadoodle. That's what I was thinking of. There you go. And they all have like orphans in them. And then you look at okay, so here's an example that wasn't well known: Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> but that was also in regard to like orphans, because he would use that a lot. Or the children being separated from their parents and things like that. So uh, I found that was a really interesting thing that Don Bluth liked to work with uh, for a lot of his movies. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. And of course, we know as we're getting into the soundtrack portion uh, that James Horner did the, um, the score... And in a decade where Disney had reclaimed like a domination over the animation film genre, but Don Bluth really made an impact with doing The Secret of Nim, an American tale, um, having a more critical recognition before Land Before Time was actually put out. And so once Land Before Time was out, it really highlighted James Horner's film music and showed that he even had established himself as an Oscar contender for like a mainstream status, which is cool because this was for an animated film and he could have gotten, I don't remember. I mean, that was years ago, so I don't know if he even got a nod toward a nomination for best score for an animated film. Did they have categories like that? Um, the Oscars did not have separate categories like that, but things like the Golden Globes and some of the other award categories do separate animation and comedies, and they kind of have different, they have it different, but not the Oscars, no. Okay. Interesting. Because, like, especially with the characters in the film and, the you know, having the uh, high speeds for, like, what regular film would be with animation, it's somewhat different because they they have to go through the processes and everything. And so Horner not only minimized his interruptions, uh, but he composed like these extremely long cues. And when you look at the score, there are cues on there that are super long. Um, mm-hmm. they're like over 10 minutes and there's like three primary themes such as motifs that surround these themes. And it's mainly revolving around, it's like a, a feel good, um, melody. He uses a theme for the dinosaurs as a whole, uh, a second spirited comedy theme that dances in softer rhythmic tones. It kind of reminds me of uh, a piece of music that goes boom, 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 boom. You know, like Peter and the Wolf. 
And then a primary theme that introduced like an inspiration for the plight of these dinosaurs having to migrate. And I really like it. Um, I think he uses choral, you know, like a choir really well. He unleashes this general theme and really makes it majestic. Um, what are your general thoughts on the score as a whole? Um, I would say my comments on Horner in general are that he's really good at mixing like light and airy music with like really intense action. And there's multiple times uh, in this score where he does that. Like, as you just said, there are, there are multiple tracks that are between like eight and 12 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of different movements. There's going to be a lot of different themes. There's going to be a lot of different things happen in those. And he somehow does this, like has this wonderful ability to make a 12 minute track work together even if there's sad moments and happy moments and scary moments and things are going crazy and then things get kind of quiet and he somehow kind of unifies the whole theme even if he has all kinds of different things happening in the track um, and in general I think he does a wonderful job at that and he definitely did a wonderful job at that in this particular score yeah one of the things that stands out to me is that piece of music called the great migration because that would be like super noteworthy in the film itself and it's like intelligent and it shows the prowess and strength and clumsiness of the the dinosaurs and how they lope along and there's like progressions in it that are like super bold or super quiet and yet he takes those and weaves them together to make this beautiful melody, to make it uh, like a careful mix um, in mm -hmm. that specific cue. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it just is, it's really enjoyable to really listen to. Yeah, and I also like The Great Migration, and uh, that's, that's one of those eight-minute tracks, I believe, mm -hmm. and it takes two entire minutes for the track to get to full volume mm -hmm. and to get to full tempo and for all of the instruments to come in. There are tracks that aren't even two minutes long, and he takes two minutes just for the song to go from its very quiet beginning to get all the way up to like what its full grandeur is. Yeah. And that's just one, that's just one track that he does <laughs> that in. Yeah, it shows he was brilliant at really bringing out those themes and bringing out the music and as he would put it uh adding color to the film uh he always spoke of color uh through his music rather than um melody i thought it was interesting and one of the things that really stand out to me also is the um triumphant brass and string performance that's in the theme, um, The Rescue and Discovery of the Great Valley. And it gives you like this brief action sequence that soars with a harmonic spirit similar to the Rocketeer. And I just glow with excitement when I hear, <laughs> hear that score <laughs> uh, anytime because he did a wonderful job with that score. And then 
when you can tell that it's a James Horner score and he's going to bring out this exciting moment in the film and it can just, you know, lift your spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also love that track for two different reasons. One was that he used a lot of choir mm-hmm. in that track, and the human voice just gives such a different texture to it from what a lot that he had done previous in this particular film. Um, and the second thing, which I had mentioned earlier, was the extremes. Mm-hmm. It One moment it's scary, and then it's really happy, and then it's, you know, really sad because you think Petrie's dead, and then it's happy because Petrie's alive, yeah, yeah. and then, you know, Littlefoot's mom is in the clouds, and it's kind of sad, but it's, you know, you're kind of hoping Littlefoot will be better, and then there's the Great Valley, and, like, it's just it's just extremes. Like, every 30 seconds, <laughs> there's a new thing to feel, and you're just trying to, like, emotionally catch up to everything that he's, like, doing. Yeah. Agreed. So we're going to play two suites of music for this film. Uh, The first one is going to be The Great Migration and Sharptooth and The Earthquake. Now, with The Great Migration, we've talked about it quite quite frequently, quite well. Um, Sharptooth and The Earthquake really remind me of The Rite of Spring. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? One thing that I was wondering about was that with the with the cue sharp tooth and the earthquake um did you think that it reminded you of like the rite of spring maybe a little bit yeah i guess i didn't think about that at the time but now that you say that and thinking back on that i could see that a little bit yeah it's for me it was the really intense kind of airy floaty beautiful music mixed with the you know adventure and craziness happening Mm -hmm. but yeah i could see right of spring a little bit it kind of has that chaotic uh element to it even when you even compare this film with uh fantasia and the the piece Mm -hmm. that is entitled right of spring um you know you get that intense like bum bum you know and just like different elements of it it's hard to describe because i can't piece it together in my mind but uh yeah so why don't we go ahead and play these two cues
Alright, so the next two cues I'd like to play are Rescue Discovery of the Great Valley and End Credits. Now I like these because they really highlight James Horner's ability to bring out this great amount of action and he mixes it with an intense amount of suspense and thrilling adventure. Um, I really love the ending cue that it brings all the characters together. Uh, what do you think, Erica? Uh, yeah, I, I commented just a little while ago on the rescue discovery. For me, it was the choir um, and then the like massive extremes mm -hmm. that you hear throughout the song. And for the end credits, um, what I really like is that he doesn't shy away from like the sadness in the music mm -hmm. so even though it's the end credits and you know our brave little five kids made it to where they were trying to go he mixes in sort of the sadness of what they went through but still kind of gives them you know a future like he, he lets us know that it's going to be happy and they're going to be okay going forward mm -hmm. but he doesn't shy away from the sadness and all the bad things that have happened oh yeah yeah agreed so so now we'll play those two cues.
All right, so next we're going to discuss All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, what are your first thoughts on this film, or do you remember seeing it? Oh, yeah, I remember seeing it as a kid. I don't know if I remember specifically my thoughts on it, um, but I did enjoy the music. Mm-hmm. And as an as an adult, again, as we keep saying, it, it, was, it was definitely a very different experience watching it now versus watching it as a little kid because now i watch it and go oh wow that's like a 1950s jazz song which (laughs) is not something i would have understood as a child that that's what was happening so um so yes the story was much it was fun for me as an adult and i also enjoyed kind of understanding how different all the music was oh yeah um because yeah because he's you know the composer was just was not hindered by trying to stay inside one theme mm-hmm. like if, if they're in one location make the music that location if they go somewhere else and make the music something totally different and the composer just went all over the place and i think that worked really well with you know what the story was yeah and with it being a don bluth film of course you this is one of those Don Bluth films that actually did have singing songs in it. So it was technically mm. a musical. Um, <laughs> and the movie's title is actually derived from a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson. You think those dogs will not be in heaven? I tell you, they will be there long before any of us. That was his quote. So uh, interesting. I, one of my favorite authors uh yeah <laughs> um MGM they had cut a scene involving Charlie in hell uh to avoid a possibly PG rating and Don Bluth owns a private version of the uncut film that's never been released <laughs> It seems like Don Bluth has a lot of really interesting original cuts <laughs> that are exclu- that, that are exclusive to him yeah. and not to everybody else. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. And I like it that when the the heavenly whippet looks at Charlie's records, his mother and father are named Lonnie and Bert. And it's like the canine versions of Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds who were together at the Mm. time. And, of course, (laughs) Burt Reynolds being the voice of Charlie. So, Mm -hmm. and Well, Lonnie does a voice, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, she does. Um, And during the scene when Charlie is in heaven, where they keep all the clocks, of course, there's a Mickey Mouse wristwatch mixed in with all that. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, they had developed a rapport after starring in several movies together and insisted that Don Bluth leave the room during the recording session so they could improvise off one another. And Bluth agreed and allowed Reynolds and DeLuise um, to ad-lib, and he commented that their ad libs were often better than the original script. So it was uh kinda cool that they had that rapport with each other and it improved the element of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's whenever I'm working with actors, I'm always totally fine with ad libbing. 
as long as they do it the way it's written at least once. Mm-hmm. So so get it down the way it's written, and then after that, go ahead. Come up with something funnier. As a writer, I have no problem if someone comes up with a funnier line than, than what I did. I'm totally happy yeah. with that. <laughs> yep. I am that way, too. I'm not, I'm not very uh, quippy or witty when it comes to uh, lines or something of that nature. So anytime somebody can do that better than me, great. Mm. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, the book on Charlie's life reads Charlie B. Barkin, September 13th, 1937. So this took place in the 30s, and he was like, German Shepherd and part Collie, part Great Dane, part Retriever, short bit of mud. <laughs> the rest is difficult to make out, but it mentions, like, doesn't have much goodness or loyalty, tends to be on the greedy side, small section mentioning strong love. And so this was, like, his course from bad to good and things like that. And, of course, you know, we see that in the film he goes back to Earth and tries to set some things right and um, again the notes um, go back to Don Baluth's book The Art of Animation Drawing which I would like to get that to read some of the the quotes in there from him and everything because it talks about like the first stages of making the film uh, Robert Town came to Blue Studio and helped them with the story and even after he read what the crew came up with, uh, he took a bathroom break and then he gave them a simplified sum up of what the story should be and it actually became the final plot for the film. So I mean that makes it so much simpler. The film is a pretty simple plot. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's in short, it's just following Charlie. Yeah. So he's kind of a scoundrel, sort of gets killed, ends up in heaven, comes back, helps a bunch of people, which you're not expecting him to because he's still kind of a scoundrel, but realizes, (laughs) hey, it's, it's, you know, I've got people I care about, unfortunately gets killed again and finally gets to actually go to heaven. So (laughs) yes, as far as stories go, it's pretty simple, but it's still very impactful. Um, It's it's a lot of fun to watch and you really kind of rooting for all of the characters, Mm -hmm. even the bad guys, because I thought the bad guys were some of the, some of the most interesting characters in the story. Yeah. um, I still am trying to figure out what the main villain was. Was he like a, uh, like a, boxer or not a boxer but more like a bulldog uh, what kind of dog <laughs> i couldn't even tell you yeah, <laughs> they took they took so many liberties with his animation i'm not sure yeah yeah <laughs> and i thought it was really interesting also that this was possibly this film was possibly going to be like a anthology film that was going to be made up of like three different short stories and like about a canine private eye and uh, <laughs> the character of a shaggy German shepherd, uh, specifically for Burt Reynolds. And then it went through a period of financial difficulty. And so they had to change things and that never made it to 
the actual final cut for that uh, version of the film. I imagine that Don Bluth still has some elements of that <laughs> hidden away. <laughs> uh, and then also the title came from the book, uh, a book read to Don Bluth's fourth grade class. That was interesting that he resisted suggestions to change it, and he liked how provocative it sounded and how people even reacted to the title alone, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the animation for the film reflects like the darkness and the light that is actually in the film itself uh, because you have that, I don't know, that giant dog calling Charlie's name going Charlie and it's like you hear it in the film and it's almost too creepy to hear and Mm -hmm. you can tell it's definitely a Don Blues film because he had to bring in an element of like darkness and (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and and, I mean a lot of Carface's scenes he gets really nasty as well Um, especially that one where he's you know smoking on his cigar Mm -hmm. um, and his face turns red and actually everything curls and it goes very devilish Mm -hmm. like that's I mean that can be kind of scary depending on you know how old you are you know seeing his face get all get all creepy and devilish like that so yeah I mean Don Bluth as we've spoken many times before didn't hold back from the scariness no he didn't. Producers sometimes forced him <laughs> to remove some of the scariness, but Don Bluth himself was all for going there. Yeah, and a lot of like Carface's gang reminded you of like uh, 1930s actual gangsters and mm-hmm. um, ones that, ironically, they even made a TV series about this show too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they had a, a uh, encouragement to say, oh, let's make more of this. <laughs> Sometimes it's best just to have the movie. You don't have to make it a series. Mm-hmm. But trying to cash in on the success of the film. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how successful this movie actually was compared to the other films that Don Bluth had made. What do you think? Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that either. Yeah, because I... I mean, it doesn't Hmm. seem like it was that big of a film, but I mean, it had some big names, but not a lot of people heard of All Dogs Go to Heaven compared to, say, Land Before Time or An American Mm -hmm. Tale or... um, even Rockadoodle is kind of one of those that are just kind of out there. <laughs> oh, I guess it did say um, that it had the misfortune of appearing in theaters the same day as The Little Mermaid. Okay, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that's the answer to your question yep. right there. <laughs> found minor popularity, but probably Which... not what the director had hoped for. Uh, mm-hmm. The music music wasn't even as engaging as engaging as the Disney soundtracks, but it's not just a throwaway either. And Charles Strauss uh, concocted some really engaging dog tunes with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, and uh, then Ken Page as a beastly alligator who was fascinated 
by his own voice, mm. which is interesting. Yeah, and at the time the Little Mermaid came out, that was that was quite literally one of the biggest animated films ever until Beauty and the Beast, yeah. which was a few years later. So this coming until out at the Luth exact had a same time as Little Mermaid, yeah, really, really didn't do it so, any favors. Uh, it, it changed things even at that point. Uh, so today, I've got a couple, a few cues that I'd like to play. Um, this one will be, um, let's see, hang on. No, I guess, all right, so this is the only piece of music that we're going to play for this, uh, this section. Because um, I'll be playing uh, Mardi Gras, Hellhound, At the Racetrack, Dogs to the Rescue, and Goodbye, Anne-Marie. Now, Ralph Burns, who was the actual composer, highlighted elements of, like, an awe-inspiring piece of music, and then he would change things to kind of a jazzy, upbeat sort of way of bringing out his music. And then along with, like, the singing songs, I honestly really like this entire soundtrack. Uh, what do you think of it, Erica? Uh, yeah, I like the whole thing. Um, I mean, I enjoy the fact that Burt Reynolds did all of his own singing, um, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. I mean, I always like it when an actor does it. Even if they're not a great singer, I always like it, you know, to stay in character and to kind of have it as authentic as possible. Um, and as I said earlier, I really enjoyed that a lot of the songs are in just you know different genres different styles like they're so different from each other i mean the mardi gras track is really fun and exciting um hellhound is the one that starts with all that horrible screeching and it just gives you this like feeling of dread like (laughs) you don't you don't know what's about to happen but it just really puts you in the mindset uh for that whole track um and then i also really liked at the racetrack um it felt which I didn't notice this as a kid. I only noticed this as an adult. But it felt like a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. Like I like I felt like suddenly like Guys and Dolls had started playing. Like yeah. that's that's very much the way that particular track was. But that's what the racetrack, you know, cue was like. They're mm-hmm. at a racetrack. They're pretending to be you know these people with all this money, and they're just showing up and you know waste throwing money on horses. So it like it worked perfectly for feeling like something that was like Guys and Dolls. So I actually enjoyed the fact that all of the tracks kind of had their own flavor to them. Yeah, me too. I like how wide-ranged Ralph Burns really was with the score. Uh, So, Erica, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Ally. We have. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Where can can people find you? Uh, yeah, the easiest place would just be at my website, which is ericachristie.com, E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E. Um, and you can find all of my social media, YouTube pages, everything from that one location. All right. So I will point people in that direction by listing it in the show notes. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, at Soundtrack Alley. Um, I'm on Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Apple Podcasts. Um, occasionally, you'll find that I have interviews or special features on my website, which is SoundtrackAlley.net. And today, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. And you can find his work at XanderScores.com. 
And I look forward to our next film of Don Bluth, whatever it may be. Um, It'll be down the road a little ways, but I know we'll have a nice conversation about it. And so until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.